illuminate some complex policy issues, giving different points of view equal and fair time, and making sure that we try to take the partisanship out of the debate so we get to the real issues that underlie our options as a country. Tonight's debate will focus on Afghanistan. America's been involved in Afghanistan for nearly 12 years. There's been remarkable progress in education, healthcare, women's rights, children, governance, the economy, and yet there's, has come a, at a cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, thousands of lives, and the question remains, is it really sustainable? We're now committed to a transition in Afghanistan. As President Obama said, ending America's war in Afghanistan by the end of 2014. But is Afghanistan ready? And what will happen when America leaves? And on the other hand, would it really be any better if we stayed? We have four distinguished panelists tonight representing four distinct perspectives on Afghanistan and US policy. And we hope that their debate helps illuminate the challenges that we still face as a country. Before introducing our moderator, allow me to introduce the man whose life and whose family has inspired the creation of this institute, a man who's dedicated his family and his career to national service, Senator John McCain. Thank you very much, Kurt. Uh, I'd like to, like to thank Jenna Leaf, who's uh, going to be our moderator here and our panelists, all of whom uh, I have had the opportunity of knowing and interacting with over a number of years. Uh, last debate we had uh, was on Syria, and it got to be a very spirited and <laughs> engaging uh, debate, and I anticipate this one to be as well. Uh, th this issue is, uh, could not be more timely. The uh, administration is going to finalize their commitments or uh, agreements as to troop strengths, as to uh, missions, as to participation of our allies. Uh, there are a lot of very serious decisions that are looming, and they need to be explained and, and, uh, and uh, receive the support of the American people. First time I met President Garzai was in 2001 at the fall of uh, of Kabul, uh, and he came out to Bagram where Lindsey Graham and Joe Lieberman and I are, and we've been going back every three or four times a year uh, ever since. And we've watched the, we've watched it progress, and we've watched it uh, two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes one step forward and two steps back. And uh, we have four very highly qualified individuals here tonight. This debate, in my view particularly when we're talking about the costs in American blood and treasure, is one that needs to be conducted, frankly, all over America. And I'm very pleased that we are addressing this issue, particularly in this timely fashion. And Jen, I want to thank you for your participation. I never watch Fox, so uh, <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you all for coming. Okay, as we saw, we have a number of um, guests from Afghanistan in the audience, and I understand that many more are watching online in Afghanistan. In fact, I, I heard a story that the foreign ministry put out a notice to say we'd encourage you to watch this. Uh, so for all of you watching here or elsewhere, welcome. Uh, this is also being broadcast live on Arizona State University television, and we have students at ASU watching. We encourage you to send in your questions as well for later in the debate. Um, after the opening stages of the debate, there will be opportunities for questions from the audience, so please do think about and prepare your questions. And without any further ado, I'd be uh, very pleased to introduce to you our moderator for the debate, Jenna Lee from Fox News. 
Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for, for having me this evening. Uh, we've heard a lot about the panelists. We haven't met them yet, so I thought I would introduce them first, give a few opening remarks to start us off, and then we, we can get going. Uh, sitting in the, the hot seat for the Kagans, I hear. This is the Kagan chair because last time there was another Kagan here. But this is Frederick Kagan. He is the director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute. In 2009, he served in Kabul, Afghanistan as part of General McChrystal's strategic assessment team. He's also been back in recent years as well to conduct research for Generals David Petraeus and John Allen. So we thank him for his presence today. Uh, Kenneth Roth is, is next to him. He is the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. As you know, this organization operates in about 90 countries around the world. They have a bureau in Afghanistan where Ken has spent some time, so he'll share an interesting perspective uh, for us tonight. As will Steve Clemens. Oh, Steve Clemens is on the end. Seth, Seth G. Jones, not to be confused with Seth Jones, the hockey player, right, Seth, just so we're clear <laughs> on that. Seth G. Jones is Associate Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the RAND Corporation. He has served as plans officer and advisor to the commanding general of U.S. Special Operation Forces in Afghanistan as well. And finally, Steve, sorry about that, there you are, Steve Clemens, editor-at-large for The Atlantic. Uh, he's also publisher of The Washington Notes. You know, talking about war for me is, um, well, I, I believe I offer a little bit different perspective than a lot of moderators out there in that I haven't actually been to Afghanistan, although I have wanted to go. Uh, my grandfather was actually a war correspondent for the Associated Press uh, during World War II, and his nickname was Lucky Lee because he never lost his typewriter. And I can't imagine what it's like to cover a war with a typewriter, but he did. Uh, I come at this from a little different perspective, and it's uh, appropriate because of where we're at tonight. Uh, my husband is in the audience. He is a uh, decorated Navy combat veteran. And when we met, uh, he was serving as uh, officer of a Navy SEAL team. So I watched him deploy. I have buried friends. And you know, war is personal. Policy is really personal. and. It's something that I think we should reflect upon a little bit tonight as we open up this conversation. <clears throat> a couple things just want to put out there for how long we've been in Afghanistan. We have actually been in Afghanistan longer than the Civil War, World War I, and World War II combined. It's the longest war that we fought with an all-volunteer force. We've spent more than a half trillion dollars in this war effort. Right now, we have 66,000 troops at war, another spring fighting season yet to come. Uh, interesting this week, just a little news for, again, some more context. President Karzai this week made claims that some of our special forces are harassing and torturing and murdering local people, claims that are not uh, substantiated by any evidence as to be found at this time. And one counterinsurgency expert described this as post-withdrawal politics. Uh, as we know, we're aiming to withdraw in 2014. We all know the year. Uh, we don't know what that's going to look like yet. And that leads us to the question, should we stay or should we go? What is that going to look like? Uh, we have two people up here who think we should stay, two uh, that think we should go. They're divided right in the middle for ease of understanding of that. Although, they have very different reasons for why they think we should stay or should go. 
and you might notice that they may debate themselves at certain times during this. It's quite a nuanced conversation. Uh, at the beginning, we're gonna do three minutes of opening statements. They're gonna give you their positions about why they think we should stay or why should we think uh, they think that we should go. And um, we do have time on that, three minutes. If they go over the three minutes, the Jaws music, like the Academy Awards comes in. And that was embarrassing. So we'll try not to, <laughs> to let that happen. <laughs> so Fred, do you wanna start us off? You believe that we should maintain a presence in Afghanistan, why? I think that the United States has vital national security interests in Afghanistan and in the outcome of the conflict. And I think that we need to do um, what is necessary to accomplish the mission, which is involved in securing those interests. Uh, I believe that that means, therefore, that we will need to have a continued military presence in Afghanistan along the lines that the president has supported. And I, as, you, as we talk about the bipartisanship of this institute, it, I can't think of anything more bipartisan than having someone from the American Enterprise Institute sitting here and largely defending President Obama's policy in Afghanistan uh, against someone from the Atlantic. Um, so bipartisanship does actually exist. Um, and the, it is a very nuanced conversation. It is a very complicated issue. We went into Afghanistan because it was a sanctuary for Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda used that sanctuary to attack us. There is not now a significant Al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan. Therefore, some, including probably some of my colleagues on this panel, argue that we can and should leave. Um, the problem is that that imagines that the current situation will persist indefinitely regardless of what we do. And my observations in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in the world generally are that things don't stay the same when you change major elements of them. And our presence in Afghanistan today is a major element. We are working to work ourselves out of a job in Afghanistan, but the Afghan security forces are not yet there. So what would happen if we withdrew our forces prematurely and a, and the Afghan security forces were to fail, which I believe they would if we withdrew too rapidly. You would see a number of dynamics emerge. One of them, the first would be that you would see, uh, I think, the rapid reemergence of ethnic civil war um, in the country. We've seen signs of growing uh, ethnic tension. It's remarkable that there has been so little ethnic conflict in Afghanistan over the past decade, um, but the seeds of ethnic conflict are there. And we have been a critical factor why there has not been ethnic conflict. I think that if it were believed that we actually were going to abandon Afghanistan quickly to its own devices, you would see renewed ethnic conflict, renewed civil war. And that, in turn, would lead to the reemergence of enormous governance vacuums and uh, communal violence of the sort that provides uh, safe haven and propitious environments for groups like al-Qaeda uh, to come in again. Now, we can talk about why would al-Qaeda go back to Afghanistan, they have Pakistan, they have Yemen, they have Somalia. And the answer is because actually within the al-Qaeda ideology and the history of that movement, Afghanistan actually is central. Um, it is incredibly important to their narrative. It's where al-Qaeda was born. It's where the only just Islamic state in the world has ever reigned from their twisted perspective. Um, and it would be the place where al-Qaeda in its own narrative had defeated two superpowers. They would return. And we would find it very hard to deal with that. And we would not be able, in my view, to deal with it from offshore, from the Indian Ocean, from anywhere else, because of the simple logistics involved. As people compare Afghanistan to Yemen and Somalia, uh, one of the things that strikes me is 
it's important to understand the difference between a landlocked country and a country that has a long maritime border. We can operate freely from the sea in Yemen and Somalia. We have to fly over several hundred miles of Pakistani territory at a minimum, or even more uh, territory if you want to use Manas and Kyrgyzstan to operate in Afghanistan. So I do not believe that it will be possible to conduct counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan um, from a distance while I do believe that we will be creating the conditions that will be propitious to the reemergence of a sanctuary for our enemies at the same time. And that's the basis of the reason why I think we need to stay. A few key reasons there. Um, is this on too? No, you're okay? I actually have props to bring up when it comes to Pakistan and the strategic importance of Afghanistan based on the point that Fred made. Steve, I have those props for you, so be ready for that. But Ken, in the meantime, you, you also believe that there should be a presence in Afghanistan, but you come at it from a very different angle than Fred. Tell us about that. That's correct, Jenna. I think when most people thought about the topic of this evening's debate, they thought about should the United States stay militarily in Afghanistan or not. Um, my position is the United States should stay engaged in Afghanistan. I don't take a position on whether that engagement should be militarily or not. But I knew, do know that political engagement is essential. Indeed, a lot of the problem is that Afghanistan has been seen from a US policy perspective too much simply as a military matter. And that has been utterly counterproductive. Um, if you imagine yourself a Taliban commander, you know, what would be fertile ground for the Taliban to expand in Afghanistan? It would be a massively corrupt government that is repressive, where there is you know, no serious effort to hold troops accountable. And of course, you add on to that the so-called occupying power. Um, and this is just a, you know, it's a bonanza. It's exactly what you would want for Taliban expansion. Um, the US has actually, in many ways, made that worse by initially starting off with a light footprint, which um, basically didn't have the capacity to address these broader political questions. Um, the, it required uh, reliance on local warlords to maintain security, um, which of course made it impossible for Karzai to hold them to account because these were his allies. He needed them to keep the country together. Um, this has really been a, you know, a recipe for unaccountable, abusive government. Now, I don't want to pretend there haven't been significant advances in Afghanistan. There have. If you look at you know, the rights of women, they are dramatically better today than they were under the Taliban. Um, there is a, a vibrant civil society. Um, I was telling Jenna, I, I held a press conference last March in Afghanistan, and 80 TV cameras showed up to give you a sense of, of you know, the vibrant press that is there. Um, these are big advances, but they are vulnerable. Um, to just show how vulnerable they are, look at what President Karzai did about a year ago when he basically endorsed a Shura Council view that, that women should go back to living in the home, requiring their husband's permission to travel, um, beating women was okay. You know, this is our ally, President Karzai. Um, and, and we're going to see much more of that as Karzai has to, or perceives himself as having to strike deals with conservative elements of Afghan society who do not share the U.S. so-called red lines regarding women's rights or, or freedom of expression or, or, or the freedom of civil society. So my view is that much more attention has to be paid to this political dimension. And I think, ironically, the departure of US troops is going to open the door for more attention to that. Um, up until now, when the US ambassador periodically met with President Karzai, you know, items one, two, three, four, and five on the agenda were military matters. And, and we saw just this week, as General alluded to, how Karzai can cause problems militarily. But with US troops largely out within a year and a half, um, suddenly this will be the Afghan war. And there will be space on the agenda to address some of these other issues. 
the US will have leverage. Um, we've promised to support this Afghan military effort for the, last, for the next decade. So there is significant leverage there if it is used widely, uh, wisely. If, if there is um, you know, a clear plan to protect women's rights, to protect civil society, to protect the press, to demand accountability with respect to abuse of Afghan forces. Um, and if it's clear that living up to that plan is going to be conditioned for the ongoing security assistance. Um, so far, all there is is heartfelt desire that these things happen. There isn't a plan. Indeed, when we pushed the Obama administration for that plan, we get you know, shock and dismay. How can you distrust us? Of course we want these things. And nobody argues that they want it, but they're not doing anything about it. Um, indeed, the way it tends to be addressed is through technical assistance programs. They'll write a check because there's lots of money to go around. So they'll have a, a plan to build up civil society or a plan to build up the press or a plan to protect women's rights. And you know, they're sort of having technical assistance training programs. They're not addressing it at the political level. And what is needed is serious, sustained pressure on the government, on Karzai and whoever comes after him, to live up to these basic elements of a democratic society that are clearly works in progress. But if we're going to avoid backsliding, it's not just the Taliban we have to work or worry about, it's our allies. And, and that's going to require much more than the military plan that so far has dominated US policy. Thank you, Kenneth. Uh, Seth, you have a different perspective. You think that we should leave, but there's an asterisk to that. So tell us a little bit about your position about why you think we should leave Afghanistan. Yes. <clears throat> And when I use the word leave, I mean downsize. So you'll see I probably sit somewhere between several of the people sitting here. Let me just start off by saying we're going to actually go through what's now the declassified archives of uh, the Soviet Politburo discussions in the mid-1980s. Where the Soviets, in my view, ended up uh, losing in Afghanistan was actually not in Afghanistan. It was in Moscow. Uh, and it was the pressure that was put on uh, Gorbachev from uh, mothers of uh, Soviet soldiers that were killed in the country and the economic and political collapse of the country that led to, in part, the decision to withdraw. Um, I would argue, from a starting basis, we are in a different situation than we were in 2001 or two. The uh, Afghan support for the U.S. presence, at least a major U.S. presence, has definitely declined. It is widely, uh, that information is widely available on a range of public opinion polls. Second. Um, the American support for the war has clearly gone down uh, in a significant way. Uh, based on that reality, and that's part, partly based on the, um, uh, the uh, economy and, and other pressures, the, the war in Syria right now, which uh, the McCain Institute has uh, debated um, already, uh, as well as uh, the rise of China, have, are, have pushed U.S. Uh, foreign policy to look at other areas as well. I think what that means is that the footprint and the strategy have got to evolve with those conditions. So uh, what's my argument along these lines? First, I would agree with uh, Fred here that uh, I do think there is a national security interest in um, remaining. Uh, but I'll outline what that looks like. And that is uh, there, there is an al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan today. Um, I was up along the border several months ago in Kunar. There is an al-Qaeda presence today. Uh, there is some external plotting that appears to be going on from there. There are individuals like Farouk al-Qahtani who are involved in um, uh, establishing a small al-Qaeda safe haven. That border where the al-Qaeda leadership sits on the other side of, uh, of the border in Pakistan is uh, there. And that border is extremely porous. So there is an interest here, as well as I would argue there are 
To have safe havens like that means that they have allies, both Taliban and Haqqani network allies in Afghanistan right now. Um, but what is what are the conditions and what does that threat mean as we look forward? I would say several things. One is the goal of the U.S. should be deterring and defeating uh, al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. 2010, the U.S. was hit or nearly hit by a Tariqi Taliban Pakistan attack in Times Square. Um, the year before was Najibullah Zazi who had been trained in Pakistan. So this is not just this is not just an al-Qaeda issue. There are, uh, we've seen an increase in Lashkar-e Taiba operatives in Afghanistan as well. Uh, this, there are concerns about growing militancy. Uh, second, the U.S. should work to prevent the overthrow of the Karzai government and its successor after the 2014 elections <coughs> from a Taliban takeover. That should be prevented. What does that mean from a military? Ken talked about the human rights uh, aspect. From a military perspective, what I would argue is if you look at U.S. efforts in places like the Philippines, El Salvador, uh, Colombia, the, 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 there is a strong argument for uh, continuing to have a robust um, special operations presence and intelligence apparatus that can conduct not just counterterrorism strikes, but assist the Afghans on the counterinsurgency front. So this does become an Afghan war, but with a much lower U.S. profile. I would also Final, uh, make my final comment by noting we often forget we still have U.S. forces in countries like Colombia. Uh, they just, they're just playing a much more um, uh, uh, role uh, well below the radar scheme, uh, screen. But they've been, they've been training uh, Colombian forces in what's still a, a low-boil insurgency. So I think we have uh, several decades in the Colombian context. I think if we have a fairly low but robust soft special operations and intelligence presence will have an ability to continue this struggle but from a much lower U.S. footprint. you have a number on that? Um, I think uh, if you look at numbers in, say, the Philippines on a per capita level, uh, total U.S. footprint somewhere in the 7,000, 7, 8,000 uh, category, but soft and intelligence heavy. Thank you. Steve? Uh, thank you very much. And I, I want to... Uh, align my comments with John McCain that I think this is the kind of debate that should be taking place all over the United States. We've just had a presidential election in which this was a very muted topic. Uh, and I think the importance of these national security questions and where the nation places its strategic equities are vital uh, to the country. This may be a very odd moment historically because there may be a possibility that Fred Kagan and Steve Clemens might co-write an Atlantic piece because there Let's is Let's not get ahead of, of ourselves, Steve. I'm, <laughs> I'm um, I, um, I founded... What, what about the rest of us? Yeah. <laughs> Fred's the only one I'm sort of aligned with at the moment. <laughs> no, what did but, I do but, wrong? But to, to make it, when I uh, was at the New America Foundation, I helped create, led, and co-authored the Afghanistan Study Group Report, which came out a few years ago. It's one of the early reports at Costco. But what we wrote at that time is that we recommended uh, that President Obama uh, engage in a decrease to 68,000 troops by then October 2011, 30,000 by July 2012. These residual force levels should be reviewed as to whether they are contributing to our broader strategic objectives by the fall of 2012, and if not, withdrawn in full over time. That would save you know, X amount of dollars, et cetera. But in, in the report, which I associated myself with, it was never a question of a full withdrawal. We had to look at what the strategic mindset of this town and country was at that time several years ago. And my argument would be that broadly the strategic class in Washington believed we would never leave Afghanistan. That was the debate. We now have a remarkable uh, consensus 
that is where Ken Roth is saying, well, we may not know what type of debate. We have uh, Fred Kagan basically saying I, he largely supports the administration's posture. But just 18 months ago, I would say the general consensus was a very large uh, presence over a very long period of time and that the White House would not have the ability uh, to draw down. And I think this was a view shared by many generals. When you just quickly look back and take, take you know, when I uh, draw in, uh, got drawn into this, it was very interesting to listen to some of the testimony that came along later. When Richard Lugar asked General Petraeus about the relevance of Afghanistan and America's commitment to Afghanistan to other broader strategic objectives in the region, uh, Petraeus said, that's not my job. My job is to make Afghanistan succeed, to make sure that US forces there succeed and we can check off that box, not to look at the broader strategic questions. I think the broader strategic questions of what Afghanistan has meant to the United States are very, very important. We were spending $120 billion a year in a country with $14 billion of GDP. As we deployed more and more troops in Afghanistan, we saw the uh, designated enemy increase in, in numbers of troops. And, and to a certain degree, this was a um, self in my view, a self-defeating policy. And as we got deeper and deeper, two interesting things happened when you began looking at how Iran was posturing itself and how China was posturing itself. And, and they saw us tied down, militarily overstretched, beleaguered, and unable to do things elsewhere. And so from a strategic perspective, I've always had the view that while Afghanistan was a vital mission that we should have done after 9-11, chasing uh, those that caused such harm in New York and Washington, that was absolutely right. But there was a point at which this, the mission of this, like so many missions abroad, became state building, became human rights, many of them laudable goals. But in my view, using the Pentagon to achieve those uh, objectives was where went, things went wrong. I worked at the New America Foundation with Steve Call, Peter Bergen, who, with whom I have great respect, but share, you know, view this differently. And I asked him at the time, I said, we haven't done what Senator McCain did, which is to go talk to the American public about the strategic costs and consequences of this over a period of time. And anyone looking at those budget figures would knew that we were raising expectations in Afghanistan. I have friends that work in Afghan ministries who are translators. So one of them happens to be married into a tribal family, and he is regularly subjected to threats from his own family members if he were to go back. Uh, he's trying desperately to get out of that country to save his life. There are expectations set that I do feel exactly what Ken does and what are, that we have a moral responsibility that's very hard to sustain given the fact that we, we created a, 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 a contract with the Afghans that we would stay for a long time. But strategically, what really matters in my book is are we influencing Iran's behavior? Are we influencing China's behavior? I'll just close with a bit of a, you know, I don't mean to make it a joke, but it is a joke. There was a time when I was in uh, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their policy planning staff, and I said, will you please tell me what your grand strategy is, China? I would love to see it. He says, we really don't need one as long as you Americans are distracted in small Middle Eastern countries. And, and you know, there, there, it was meant as a joke, but it does raise the broader question of weeds in forest or trees in forest. And being able to look at the broader question of how do you position America's strategic assets in a way that enables us to be the shaper in the international system as opposed to getting dragged down where American power is crimped and, and controlled where Afghanistan, if it had gone better, might have been a point of leverage. But it began looking at a place that became a suck for American power, not a leverage point for American power. So if power. you could, would you pull everybody out tomorrow? No. Why? I've never held that position because I believe as we wrote in the Afghanistan uh, report then, that you need to use other elements of statecraft, draw them in, 
and we have a presence there today, so you need to draw down responsibly. If we left tomorrow, the Kabul government would be overthrown. You would create a vacuum of power immediately. You need to do what you can to try and hold the semblance so that the other wheels can come on and take care of themselves. I've always advocated a very modest troop presence to prevent uh, a coup or to prevent the overthrow of the Kabul government. But at the same time, we see what's happening that's happening today in Afghanistan is the rest of the country is going to be hard to deal with. You're going to have a rise of the Taliban in certain areas. You're going to have a rise of warlordism in other parts. We're going to strike deals with those warlords. The Pakistanis are going to strike. You know, it's a very interesting problem when essentially you're at war inside a country with the allies uh, uh, of, of Pakistan that we're sometimes allied with and sometimes at war with. So it's a very complex beast in which when you look at India, you look at Pakistan, you look at China, you look at Iran, that all of them saw benefits to us being bogged down in Afghanistan. And that's why I've raised many of the questions about uh, the, the, the large military footprint uh, strategy that we had. So to prevent too friendly of a partnership between you and Fred, Fred, I'd like you to rebut to Steve and tell him why he's wrong and why you believe that we should have a true presence there that should look more like South Korea uh, rather than what we're talking about, which would be a withdrawal of, of troops to a six, 7,000 level with what Seth says, or maybe almost complete lack of military presence and uh, more attention on other parts of the world, like Steve says. What do you think? I, I'd be happy to, Go ahead. to, to, to do that. And, and Steve, there's no risk that we'll be co-authoring that article anytime <laughs> soon. Um, and I also want to make it clear that I am not a supporter of President Obama's uh, policy. I am, find myself in the weird position of defending, as, as you pointed out, any presence in Afghanistan which the president is trying to maintain in a circumstance where, where the overwhelming desire is to have no presence in Afghanistan. Right. But as Senator McCain has said many, many times, and I've always fully agreed with it, that setting timelines in war is an extremely foolish undertaking. Um, and the truth of the matter is that this conversation is premature. Um, and it is premature because we're talking about what are we going to need two full fighting seasons hence. And I don't feel confident enough in my crystal ball to be able to say with any confidence what we're going to need. And I think it's actually incredible folly on the part of this administration to be making this decision at this point. Uh, this is not the time to make, be making this decision, but very well, we are where we are. And it's the we are where we are that I really want to focus on here. Look, I would love to have no American troops in Afghanistan. There is, a, there is a belief out there among some people that there is a desire on the part of the American military and military industrial establishment to be in Afghanistan. Having spent 15 months of my life in Afghanistan, I have no desire to be in Afghanistan or to have my friends there, let alone have them die. The issue is what is required to accomplish the conditions that we all seem to be agreeing need to be accomplished. And the problem is that what I'm hearing from Seth and what I'm hearing from Steve are conditions about what the American traffic will bear. And I'm not prepared to argue about that. I don't know what the American traffic will bear because that's not my area of expertise. What I know is that there are certain base requirements to do anything in Afghanistan that are based on physical realities and military realities and realities on the ground. And what I know is that if you want to have a special forces presence somewhere, you have to have a base. The base has to be secured. That requires a certain number of troops. They need to have certain kinds of equipment. They need to have certain kinds of logistics. They need to be able to move around. They need, if you want to be training Afghans, you need to have a whole other set of capabilities that go into this. And I've looked at this in detail. I've sat in on the planning exercises. I know Seth has also. Um, but the reality is, I would love to be able to do this with three or 4,000 troops, as some people in the White House have suggested they'd like to do. I'd also like to look like Harrison Ford. 
neither one of those things is going to be feasible, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I have to look at the actual realities and say, what is required to have any presence in Afghanistan, realistically, if you're not prepared to have another Benghazi, if you're not prepared to contract out your own security to local Afghan militias, which I, for one, am not comfortable doing. And when you start to look at that, you find that the number that Seth put out, six, 7,000, is the, is the minimum that you can really have, in my view, and have one, maybe two bases in Afghanistan. You, sim you can't secure more than that at any, because this isn't Colombia. The situation is not the same. The threat environment is not the same. The enemy is not the same, and their capabilities are not the same. So if we're going to protect the troops that we put there and the diplomats and the OGA personnel that we put there, you are looking at a minimum requirement of 10 to 15,000 just to be there at all. And if you want to be doing training, which the president says he wants to be doing train, advise, and assist, you rapidly get up to requirements in 25, 30,000 troop level if you just look at the realities on the ground. Steve, if we don't do what Fred says we should do, are we repeating the mistakes of the Soviet Union, with which uh, Seth has referenced? If we do not change, if we do not leave a presence there, then are we just repeating the mistakes that we've already seen play out in that country? We run the risk of it, and I certainly don't advocate uh, running uh, back to an abandonment of Afghanistan. You know, I once tried to get the Open Society Institute, uh, which is associated and funded with George Soros, to support one of our programs uh, that raised a lot of these questions on Afghanistan. And, and they said, you know, uh, the chairman in Afghanistan is saying, we have women uh, who are getting educations in Kandahar uh, because of those U.S. soldiers that are there. And I think that's a very powerful link. And I don't, I, I, I want to be very humble about this. This is not something to be humorous about. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there, as Ken was saying, he is ambivalent, maybe unsure about what elements of American engagement there should be. And what I've seen happen is a real rise in the sense that the Pentagon can deliver on virtually all subjects, whereas virtually every other element of, whether it's USAID, whether other elements of statecraft, whether it's you know UN agencies and others, they have key responsibilities. That, you know, I, I once talked to Tony Zinni, and he, and he was very, very, this is General uh, Zinni, was very di um, dismissive of the aid and development functions of non-military units, that they didn't have the discipline, they didn't do the scenarios, they didn't make the engagement. And I largely agree with him. And we should expect much more from these agencies that are engaged in international, so that a, a country like Afghanistan, in which the United States has had a large presence, has other options. But it's not going to be the same. And we raised expectations in a way. When I come back to this number of $120 billion a year spent in a country with a $14 billion GDP. Our performance should have been better. The place, we, we saw $9 billion leave that country in a month through a bank corruption scandal. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a real mess. And I think people living in Kabul today, many of whom I talk to, are very, very concerned about what will happen when the US draws down forces further. So I get that. And I don't want it to abandon them. But I don't believe that you should deploy US military uh, men and women and uh, deploy resources in the Pentagon indefinitely for indefinite outcomes when they don't check off the strategic boxes. The highest strategic concern I have in the, in the world today right now is the course of Iran and making sure that Iran knows that the United States has capabilities and military resources to deal with it. I also don't like to watch the, 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 the Pentagon's assessment of the enemy grow in, in concomitantly and consistently with the troop levels that we have. That was a shocking thing to see. So that the more we went out into communities, the more enemies we were building. Somebody had to basically take a look at that and say, what are we doing here? What are we creating? So and are we not in a trap 
that then Pakistan, you know, Fred, I think, is absolutely right. I agree with him in the, in, in the way he defined the basing issues, the logistics questions, the supply, but that puts you in a position of dependency on that neighborhood, puts you in a position of dependency on Pakistan, which I think is one of the most dangerous nations in the world today. And so the deeper we're engaged in Afghanistan, the more we are, in fact, caught in an Indian-Pakistani uh, uh, game that I don't think we fully understand. And, and unless you have a Pakistan strategy, unless you have an India strategy, unless you have an Iran strategy, being sucked deep into Afghanistan, despite the humanitarian concerns, is the wrong place for U.S. soldiers to be. Seth, go ahead. I'm going to disagree a little bit with both, both of my colleagues here. First, on the Steve front, Steve, I, I do think, and I was waiting to hear something along these lines in your initial comments and didn't hear it, but I'd like to draw you out on it because I think when it comes to whether and what kind of presence the U.S. has in Afghanistan, the question has to be, um, what is the threat to the U.S. homeland coming from this area? And if there is none, and if your argument is that the threat from uh, al-Qaeda groups in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan is zero, then I would say there is an argument for leaving despite human rights issues. That is not the case right now. Therefore, I think it is, it is in the U.S. interest to stay because that threat, while degraded, remains and has the possibility of resurging. On the, on the uh, troop level issue, I'm working on a book right now that looks at uh, a whole range of factors that have contributed to counterinsurgency success, 100, roughly 135 cases. What I point out, just in response to Fred's comment, is there is in general an inverse correlation between the size of an outside force and counterinsurgency success. What you actually find is size matters to some degree, but it, it is the local element that is absolutely fundamental in providing a sustained counterinsurgency presence in winning a war over the long run. A large U.S. presence, in my view, historically, uh, and there are some outlier exceptions, uh, generally has been inversely correlated with counterinsurgency success. In fact, what you see is several factors generally come to the surface in counterinsurgency success. One is the competence of national and local security forces. This will become absolutely critical over, over time. That is the Afghan national security forces. The quality of local governance, which can undermine and to some degree has undermined local support. And then third, the issue that uh, Steve brought up, which is outside support. Um, whatever we do in Afghanistan, with an insurgency that has a command and control node across the border in Pakistan, that is the Taliban's inner shura, long as it continues to exist in places like Baluchistan and, and, and Karachi, the odds of winning in Afghanistan are terribly low. And so I, I think we've got to move to this issue sooner rather than later, because this is not just an Afghanistan issue. Ken, would you like to weigh in quickly? Because we will move to Pakistan yeah. in just a I mean, moment. I'd like to, first of all, distinguish between U.S. counterterrorism and counterinsurgency goals, because I think they're very different issues, and we've been merging them so far in this debate. With respect to counterterrorism, I mean, yes, Afghanistan's going to pose an al-Qaeda threat for a long time, but so will Western Pakistan, so will Somalia, so will Mali. Um, it's not clear to me that that in and of itself justifies a massive troop presence. Indeed, what I draw from those four situations is that um, the terrorist threat thrives in situations of either bad governance or no governance, or, and, and it loves the two together. Um, and so if you look at, you know, why is there a terrorist threat in northern Mali, for example, it's because of the traditional neglect of the, the Tuaregs there. Um, you know, why is there a terrorist threat in Somalia? It's because there was no government at all. Um, 
we, we um, do have an interest in enhancing the capacity of the Kabul government to govern all of Afghanistan and to govern it well. And that's where I think the counterterrorism interests merge with a counterinsurgency interest. Um, otherwise, Afghanistan is just you know, another country facing an insurgency. And you know, other than the political embarrassment of the US you know, losing Kabul after all these years, there isn't any special interest there. But there is, I think, a US interest in seeing good governance spread across the country. Um, that's going to be the best way over the long term to avoid both the Taliban resurgence and an al-Qaeda resurgence. Now, you know, the problem is that the way the US has gone about that um, has really been you know, quite ham-fisted. Uh, you know, there's this talk of the surge, but you know, yes, the surge has made progress in, in, say, Helmand and Kandahar. Those are the two provinces everybody likes to cite. But if you look elsewhere, um, the trajectory in many ways has been downhill for the last five years. I mean, just you know, a year ago, when that awful situation of the young woman in Parwan province who was executed because she was sort of had this rivalry between two Taliban lovers. You know, Parwan is where Bagram base is. I mean, it's just, it was a hundred miles from Kabul, and this is where the Taliban are already coming back. The surge has had limited impact. Um, instead, what is going on is, is increasingly um, the US has allowed Afghanistan to pursue a military strategy which has very little regard for the rights of Afghan people. Um, we're promoting these Afghan local police, which is basically you know, arming villagers and, and asking them, please you know, don't engage in personal vendettas, which is obviously what happens. Um, US efforts to, um, there's been no serious effort to achieve an ombudsman who would hold abusive forces accountable. The US did make a modest effort to achieve some kind of anti-corruption commission, but instead of having one with prosecutorial authority, it can simply monitor and report. You know, on and on and on, the political effort to achieve the rule of law, to make sure that Afghan forces are subject to the rule of law, that you don't generate the kind of resentment on which the Taliban and al-Qaeda will thrive, it's just failed. But what I happens if they don't want that? What happens if the local people don't want that either? Well. Um, this is where I think a serious political strategy is necessary. I mean, Karzai doesn't terribly have an interest in these things because he is clinging to power by making alliances with the thugs. Um, and the US has allowed him to do that because we've been so eager to get his cooperation on military matters that we've kind of given him the store in the political realm. That has got to change. I don't think the military is the way to do this. The military is a disaster for running civilian programs. I also don't think this traditional State Department approach of just throwing money at training programs is the way to go either. What is needed is a serious conditionality, a political effort to tell Karzai, you want the US you know, funding your military for the next 10 years when it's your war, not ours. These are the conditions. These are the bottom line rules you've got to live by. So We're not why, doing that. Why not just kill the bad guys, though? Excuse me? Why not just kill the bad guys? You, you can't kill your way to good governance. You, know, you can't kill your way to um, you know, a government that the Afghan people want to support. You've got to provide them something. We have to a degree. You know, there's better life for women. There's more, better education. There is the press. There is civil society. But at the same time, they see you know, local troops running around completely unaccountable. And, and that is what turns them against the government. That's what hands them over to the Taliban. So you know, we are naive if we can think we can just kill all the bad guys. That will never happen. You've got to build a government that the Afghan people want. And that is not necessarily what Karzai wants right now. He just wants to stay in power. We're going to take some questions from um, the audience in just a moment. I'm just going to move quickly here to Pakistan before we do that, because it's something that all of you have mentioned. And this is where the props come in. Steve, I got this for you. Oh, great. This is, I yes. keep a couple magazines the in, in my office. The Ally from Hell by uh, Jeff Goldberg. <laughs> That's right. This <laughs> is The Atlantic. It's from December 2011, The Ally from Hell. 
It's a great article. That's I keep it in my office. That's the watered-down version. I, I, I really. Yeah. I'd love to see the original if you ever get the chance. But you've all mentioned Pakistan as one of the reasons, Fred, that we should stay in Afghanistan. So it gives us the logistics to actually reach these tribal areas where the greatest threat to our national security is. The question is then, why not declare war on Pakistan? Why keep people in Afghanistan? Why not take Pakistan on directly instead of using Afghanistan as a strategy? Um, that, that one's real easy to answer. Uh, <laughs> 180 million people, more than 100 nuclear weapons. Um, but then, are we ever are we ever going to get the are we ever going to get the the people there that we're so concerned about? Well, if you want to talk about Pakistan, and I think it's worth talking about Pakistan, it's very important not to subordinate Pakistan either simply to Afghanistan or simply to Al Qaeda. Look, it is a huge problem that Pakistan, which does have more than a hundred nuclear weapons and so forth, and the largest, densest concentration of violent Islamists and Al Qaeda affiliates anywhere in the world is an incredibly badly governed state um, and is not, in fact, moving in any positive direction from the standpoint of government. It's, no, it's not even clear that its economy will remain functional or viable and its leadership lacks, no, lacks the will to do anything about that. So is it a bigger threat to our national security than Afghanistan? Um, it is a, in some respects, it is a bigger threat. But, I, but here I'm going to say I'm, I refuse to be drawn into the trap of seeing every problem as a nail because we have a hammer. Um, I can say that Pakistan is a bigger long-term threat than, Af than Afghanistan is in some respects um, without seeing an obvious military corollary to that because I don't think it's a problem that's going to be solved by applying military force. Steve, what do you think about this? Because if, to, to Fred's point, we need to keep people in Afghanistan so we can reach these areas. We're not going to declare a war in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, on Pakistan. Like I said, so, I, again, so what do we, I, I what approach do we this do? With, with some humility and, and also seeing with Senator McCain, who I know um, has different views. My, my view is that, uh, that, that, that those troops and soldiers in Afghanistan, I support the missions, the counterterrorism missions going on after um, either resurgent al Qaeda or I don't, I don't believe in conflating al Qaeda and the Taliban. Those are uh, two different arenas. But one element in this article that Jeff Goldberg wrote, which is very important to consider, is that it was revealed in there, and it may have been more broadly known, is that on the nuclear uh, warheads, that they, that they were key components that weren't mated, and so that they were held separately. As technology has moved on, that's no longer the case. We had out at the Aspen Institute this year, President Musharraf, uh, who, and also Michael Mullen and others, and, and what the concern of the, the, the group that was talking is that technology is driving these things so that the pieces aren't necessarily unmated anymore, and so that the vulnerability of Pakistan's you know, nuclear arsenal is rising with the technological sophistication of the systems. This is very important to consider because I don't know, and it wasn't revealed at Aspen, what their plans are. We keep hearing from U.S. generals that they have confidence uh, in, in this, but my sense from having been there with seeing a fight between Mike Mullen and Musharraf about some things that happened is I think there are real levels of concern that are growing. I also heard President Musharraf, who put Kayani in power, say, I guess I really didn't know that guy as well. And, and there were elements then about the Pakistani support for the insurgents inside Afghanistan that attacked the U.S. Embassy complex uh, and other facilities in Kabul. 
Um, again, we had lots of intelligence by this. This was being denied inside. I look at Pakistan as a very, very tough knot. They look at Afghanistan as their st strategic depth in an ongoing war and fight at the throat of India. And India, for the talk about Lashkar-e-Taiba, I think everything Seth said is right, but India has its versions of Lashkar-e-Taiba. And, and so you can listen to, the, listen to the former president of Pakistan view in a way, not on, 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 you know, in, in front of cameras, that Lashkar-e-Taiba is a natural response to the assaults they feel they're sustaining from India. We saw many people, innocent people, killed and slaughtered in Mumbai by one, in one of the most horrific public displays of terrorism in, 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 you know, in cameras. But that was looked at by many Pakistanis as being a fully legitimate operation. And Indians look at their own. This is a, this is a level of nastiness and at, you know, uh, uh, two, two nations, nuclear nations, at each other's throats. But you think that, our presence in Afghanistan that is stoking that? I don't think that we, we draw ourselves in to be put in a position of extortion of these powers, and that's the problem I have. By, is by that, presence, yes, our presence yeah, so. there. What's that? That we're stoking that by our presence in Afghanistan? I don't think we're stoking it. I think we're not affecting it because we don't have a strategic approach to really broadly dealing with those issues. You know, there's an interesting piece by Hussein Haqqani that came out today, the ambassador uh, from Pakistan and the United States that was held under house arrest and left, said we need to realize that Pakistan is never going to have major shared interests with us, is not going to be our friend, and we'll make smarter choices if we begin realizing that and trying to create an illusion of closeness with Pakistan. That we, now, that doesn't lead you to real easy policy prescriptions, but we need to understand that throwing six, 7,000 troops inside uh, Afghanistan with limited counterterrorism, perhaps protecting the Kabul government, perhaps shaping some kinds of the choices, doesn't mean owning the outcome in Afghanistan. We can no longer own that. There was a very important change that I think Joe Biden influenced in the president's rhetoric. We stopped talking about uh, targeting al-Qaeda and its affiliates, which is a way of talking about the Taliban, and we're talking about shaping choices but no longer really out owning outcomes. And, and I think that is important because it then sends sent, uh, messages to Iran, we now have more resources and attention for you. We have other capacity that's not tied down. And that's where I think the strategic equities of the United States should be. Why don't you want Shindan Air Base if you're worried about influencing Iranian policy? You can have an air base 50 kilometers away from the Iranian border. Why wouldn't you want that? Well, I, have, I haven't said I, w I didn't want to withdraw all the troops out there, but I don't believe that that in, on, on, in, in itself is necessarily a protected base, nor do I think it's protected inside the Afghan situation. And I worry about the counter, the blowback that essentially comes back from these presen the presence that's established inside Afghanistan, which we haven't discussed. I'm I mean, I think there's a large, I think Seth raised this, we're not wanted. We're seeing ourselves pushed out of key provinces no, in Afghanistan. We're not wanted as much. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that base to, is a, Can is, I push back on, on one comment, which ties this issue to Pakistan that Ken raised earlier, um, uh, the counterterrorism, counterinsurgency issue, I think are more conflated uh, and actually are tied together more than most people, and, and he argued, and it, it, it's, it's in this sense. One is there are terrorist groups that are and will continue to target the U.S. homeland from this area. I point to Zazi and Shazad, the Times Square bombers, two somewhat recent examples. Right. Um, uh, but um, based on, even on my last trip to Afghanistan in the Northeast, you cannot have an al-Qaeda presence without having local Taliban, not just other, Taliban allies at the district and the provincial level. Therefore, the counter for the counterterrorism campaign to succeed over the long run, the Afghan government cannot be overthrown by a Taliban regime that has elements of it, at least, 
that are willing to provide sanctuary to the kinds of groups mm -hmm. that are targeting the U.S. homeland. That's why those two are more tied together than some people would like them to be, because the argument I hear from some places is uh, that we should focus on the terrorism mission and not the insurgency. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think over the long run you can disassociate, uh, disassociate those, uh, those two, despite the fact that this administration badly wants, badly wants a political settlement uh, and a Taliban that disassociates itself from, from al-Qaeda. I don't see that happening, certainly not at a mid and a lower level in some areas. One other point, and why does this matter on Pakistan? Because, um, because uh, both this administration and the previous one finished, at least their, their, uh, the last one, both its terms, this one its first four years, and did not succeed in undermining the Taliban or, for that matter, in a major way, the Haqqani sanctuary. Why not? In, in, uh, nobody wanted to take on the Baluchistan Karachi Why problem. Why not? Uh, too politically sensitive. Uh, we, we, we have had no success in targeting the Taliban senior leadership which is not located in Afghanistan. It's in Pakistan. So why should men continue to die when our leaders are not brave enough to take on a politically sensitive topic? I think that's a, I think that is, I, I think that's, that's a good That's why question. he's on my side no, of the it's, aisle. It's not, it's not, <laughs> but I think it's important to stress, so it's not politically sensitive, it's militarily sensitive. In other words, so long as there's a large military footprint in Afghanistan, you've got to worry about Pakistan as a route to resupply the troops, because otherwise you're stuck with you know, Islam, Korean mosques in Uzbekistan. Actually, so that, so there is a situation of dependence. You know, on top of that, you know, w when there is this massive U.S. military troop in Af its presence in Afghanistan, um, it leads the U.S. to do what it's been doing, which is to treat Pakistan as if it's governed by the military and the ISI. And, and Zardari, who you know, we all understand is corrupt and a bit of a buffoon, but he's nonetheless the civilian president, um, he's a sideshow. And, and so we actually end up reinforcing um, this military dominance of Pakistan. And it, of course, it's the military, it's not the civilian government that is, is you know, building up and tolerating the, the militants in Pakistan, you know, partly as their anti-India strategy, partly as, um, as their ability to kind of influence their backyard in, in Afghanistan. But I think that as, as a more political strategy is pursued in Afghanistan, it opens the door to a, a more balanced approach to Pakistan where we stop privileging the military and the ISI. I, I know you want to get to questions, no, but okay. look, first of all, I think we're all violently agreeing on one point that I want to bring out, which is neither the previous administration nor this administration has had a coherent political strategy for dealing with Afghanistan, let alone for dealing with Afghanistan and the region. And it has not generally had a coherent and intelligent aid strategy. We have wasted huge amounts of money. We've done enormous damage. I was one of the uh, a very vocal proponent of all of the various counter-corruption measures that got going in ISAF headquarters because we saw the damage that was being done by throwing money at the problem, which was seen as a solution, and it clearly is part of the problem. Um, so getting to the issue of cost, among other things, we would be doing better with less in many respects, especially on the aid side, the way we've been doing it. But look, we need a political strategy. There is no question. We need a political strategy, and negotiate with the Taliban is not a political strategy. It's an exit strategy, and a bad one. Because the, comp the deal that needs to be made in Afghanistan is not the deal with the Taliban. It's a deal among the core power brokers and key ethnicities within that country on a government that everyone can live with. And that is the one thing we have not been trying hard to do over the last eight years on the whole, with a, with a number of exceptions. So well, should, 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 is, is should troops die, though, to yeah. prevent a civil war in Afghanistan if that's the risk? The issue is, no, troops should die to protect American interests, and that's what we're trying to do. The question is how. 
And I agree with the points that are made up here that you can, and especially violently agree with Seth's point about the impossibility of distinguishing between counterinsurgency and counterterrorism for all of the reasons that he laid out. Um, you have to have some kind of governance. There has to be some element of state building if this is going to work. The question is to do that well instead of doing it badly. But the point I want to make is you do not, it is not and should not be an either or. Well, now we need to stop doing military stuff so that we can have a political strategy. One could, in theory, with all the resources of the American government, have both at the same time. And I would submit that that's what we should have been doing and what we need to do. And one last factual point. We have allowed ourselves to be captive of Islamabad much more than is, in fact, necessary from a logistical standpoint. I would, I, most of the time that I spent in Afghanistan, Pakistan had kept the ground locks of, uh, closed. And we were, in fact, supplying without using going through Pakistan. We're flying over Pakistan, but the truth is they're not really going to be able to We lost to Ice Street, by the way, in, we, uh, in, uh, in, in headquarters. I, I, I know, but we got it back as soon as we possibly could, Seth. We really could, we worked yeah. that out. If I could say just, I, I'm, first of all, on the question of, I mean, obviously in Afghanistan, counterinsurgency and counterterrorism are, are very closely linked. But I, I think it's important to distinguish them conceptually because the U.S. ultimate interest is counterterrorism. Um, counterinsurgency is a subsidiary interest. Um, you say we should, um, you know, we should be able to do both the military and the political. In principle, that's true. In reality, there's not room for both. There's just not the bandwidth. When the ambassador goes in to talk to Karzai, all he talks about is the military stuff. And when you, when you ask them, will you bring up the political stuff, they say, oh, you know, they don't listen to us or there's sovereignty questions. There's a gazillion excuses and it never happens. So I do think that the military has gotten in the way of a political strategy that would be more effective. I'm sorry. I think if you, I mean, I'm, I don't, the, our, our ambassadors talk with Karzai about a lot of things. And I, I have to take issue with the characterization that you put out earlier that with, no one's made any effort on any of these issues. The truth is a lot of effort has been made to hold Afghan security forces accountable, uh, to, hold, to, to get anti-corruption efforts going, to get the Afghans to go along with that. It's, a lot of it's been made by the military. Some of it's been made by succession of ambassadors. It has not, on the whole, been backed from Washington. Why not? because it's been seen as state building by an administration that wants to get the hell out of there. And the problem is that it's very, what I really can't see is a strategy that focuses on doing something meaningful with Afghan politics by an administration or by a people whose fundamental approach is we just need to leave. Right now, that's our set. But let me, let me if I may, Fred, and I know we want to move as well, but I just want to, uh, <coughs> I respect you saying, you know, when, when John McCain was advocating, I think, for 40,000 troops in the surge as opposed to the 30,000 that the president committed, I think I've got that about right. There were people like Bruce Rydell and others advocating much larger numbers if you wanted to get this right. I mean, it's a very interesting question, which I think is a legitimate one, to, to think if you had unlimited resources, you had unlimited manpower to devote and resources, could you have... Uh, engage in a counterinsurgency strategy that would have been much deeper, much more profound, much more systematic, where lessons learned. We, I got to know many of the captains that were sort of David Petraeus's best and brightest. They would go out into villages and they would become the de facto mayors. They would make sure that women were getting educated. They would try to deal with the governance issue. They would work with the intelligence communities uh, to track and sort of look who the bad folks were, the good folks. When they left, the really, these are Petraeus's people coming back and say that they had a real problem in handover to the next person that came in and took over that person's role, and that so much of that institutional memory and infrastructure of knowledge and connect connectivity in those communities was lost. So the problem is that we're now, this is America's longest war, that we're well, well into this at a point, and this is, has been a debate I've had 
you know, occasionally uh, in a friendly way with people like Max Boot and Bill Kristol, who share a lot of these views. But I said, have you had the strategic discussion with the American public? Have you convinced them that this is really a vital national security issue? Because I have legitimate questions about concerns for Iran, about looking militarily overstretched. You know, when I look at the United States without assigning blame to anyone, and I look at an era where we look militarily overstretched, what's the consequence of that? Your allies don't count on you as much. They begin making other bets in the world. They won't depend on the United States to be with there when, they, when they're as much. We, we had an economic crisis in this country, which really undermined America's economic leadership, the ability to tell other economies how to organize themselves. We had, for a variety of reasons, issues in uh, uh, Bagram and Guantanamo and others that, that I think Ken's uh, people worked on a lot that raised a lot of the moral questions and became recruiting techniques for many of those who wanted to do harms to Americans and Europeans and others that are opposed. So when you look at these moral, the, you know, I, I would call moral, economic, and military deficits that the United States simultaneously, simultaneously showed, that then makes the Afghanistan and what you're doing there so much more important, both in terms of the weight and consequence of it. And it makes you ask, is that the best place for America to get its strategic echo effect, the best place to leverage its power, or has it become a trap? And I think that's a legitimate question to pose. I wish we had this debate at the McCain Institute five, six, seven years ago. I wish we'd begin to drill down into the question of, do we have an efficacious way of turning these communities around and getting things right? And we didn't do that. So now we have the problem of where we are today, and it would be nice to go back and, and do all the things Fred's saying, but we're not going to do that. So it's not the question of getting out because of this, and it raises the appropriate question, are you abandoning people in Afghanistan? Some are going to feel abandoned. Are there other elements of statecraft and institutions we should bring? Absolutely yes. Do we need to repurpose the Pentagon in this and somehow hover or find other ways to go on with an important mission so that the worst atrocities don't happen in Afghanistan? Probably, but the idea of a large, uh, 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 scale deployment of men and women and a large footprint in another country, that time is probably over because of our failure to get these other issues right. And we have to be cognizant that it's been our failure to get those other issues right that's led to this point. Well, a a lot of why we haven't gotten it right is because, I mean, as Fred sure. said, we, we have focused on nation building as a military exercise, right. and it's not. Um, if we had focused on nation building as a political exercise, one, it would have been much more palatable. You wouldn't have had the pushback from the Pentagon. Two, it would have been more effective because you know you can have a, a brilliant captain who sits there and is the pro-counsel for the area, and so long as he's there, everything's run well, but that's not a sustainable strategy. You've got to build up Afghan institutions, which requires putting pressure um, when those institutions So are, are the Afghan institutions going to be able to protect someone like her? Do you think that is that is that? No. Well, that's this is the, a I mean, this, I can tell you, I've been into the women's ministry in Kabul today. It's one of the most embarrassing, horrible things because they have no resources. They've been promised resources from the various Friends of Afghanistan donor committees. They're not given the money. There's no support inside that government. These are really heroic women inside Kabul trying to change the circumstances, and they get nothing inside their own government. Miserable circumstances. We're not paying any attention but to this it. Is where the and US so the answer is but this is where they're you not going to be protected. Yeah, but, this yeah, is but exactly it, what the U.S. can be funding, and others are putting this massive money in. Make sure a significant amount goes to the women's shelters. It goes to the women's ministry. And you think it'll be used the right way? Um, yes, there is. I, I mean, actually, have quite a bit of faith in the very embattled NGO sector in Afghanistan. Um, not the internationals, the locals. So you know, you ask, you know, can Afghans protect this woman? That's the only choice. You know, the United States is not going to stay there forever protecting women. So you've got to put pressure on the government so ultimately women have a decent chance of emerging as equals in that society. So I know you guys have a lot of questions. And there's been a lot said about the military. So I just would like to open it up with a, a veteran that's in our audience uh, who served in Afghanistan. Congressman, would you like to 
have a question or a comment. This is Congressman Hi. Cotton. You could introduce yourself with whatever resume you'd like. <laughs> Hi, I'm Congressman Cotton. Uh, hey. And cool. served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes, uh, I was in the Army for five years in Iraq in 06 and Afghanistan in 08 and 09 on a provincial reconstruction team. Uh, quick question uh, about our allies. Uh, what do you think we need from NATO going forward? Uh, what can we expect and what difference will it make to our strategic decisions? Who would like to take that on? Seth, you want to? Sure, I'll, I'll start. I, I, I think uh, at least from a uh, training perspective, uh, uh, the more the better. If the uh, British can stay involved in both uh, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and civilian operations, uh, better, we're, we're better off. If the Italians can stay uh, to some degree in the West, we're better off. If the Germans can stay to some degree in the North, we're better off. The more I think that we get both uh, development assistance and training efforts to continue from a broader NATO perspective, uh, the better off we are because um, uh, I think it, it does relieve some of the pressure in areas like the North. I mean, How I, long can I, we expect them to stay? Uh, I, I think if it's a training mission, um, that we can expect them to stay for decent periods of time the next several years. I would just say, from a U.S. perspective, U.S. must largely stay focused on the East and the South. These are the most important areas for U.S. national security. Fred? Uh, I agree with that, and I think there's a corollary to that that's very important, though. Um, because I value the contributions of our allies enormously, as you do. Um, and I've been at ramp ceremonies for Romanian soldiers who were killed, and I take exception when people talk about the fact that our NATO allies haven't been fighting and dying, they have been. Um, but we created long ago a NATO alliance that was dependent on the American military to do a lot of things and did not consist of independent militaries that were capable of conducting overseas operations on a large scale and protecting themselves and moving around an environment like this. If we want to continue to have NATO allies in Afghanistan, we are going to continue to have to enable them. Or we're going to have to continue to enable them. We're going to have to continue to provide them with ISR. We're going to have to continue to provide them with some mobility assets. We can call on them to provide more, but what you'll find rapidly is that the cupboard is bare for most of them. And some countries like Georgia, which has had right. two battalions, for God's sake, right. in Helmand for a long time fighting heroically, Georgia doesn't have those things. So as you look at the bill that we need to pay, there is a, there is a tithe, as it were, for every NATO soldier in, in Afghanistan that is going to have to be paid out of American support. I think it's worth doing. I think it's worth doing for the alliance. I think it's worth doing for all the reasons that Seth identified. But I think we need to be honest with ourselves that there is a trade-off. And if we're not going to be prepared to enable our allies, if we're going to tell them, you know what, we'd love you to stay. We'd love the Germans to stay in Mazar, but we're not going to give you anything. Good luck out there. I don't think we can expect them to stay. And frankly, I think we would deserve a fair amount of odium well, from Steve, them. Steve, on that, though, to your point of being concerned about Iran, why should we have our NATO allies stay in Afghanistan when there's places like Northern Africa, for example, or Iran that may be of greater priority well, to our national security? Well, there's in a way a kind of commons that's developed. Um, you know, we all worked on Libya together. Uh, the U.S. and British provided air support in the Mali um, uh, exhibit. There's a kind of commons of, so you can't just, you know, be a la carte on everything. You have to work together. But I think the Congressman's question is a very complicated and important one. A couple of years ago, um, Senator McCain, you may remember John uh, Leon Panetta uh, gave a speech at the Halifax International Security Forum, and I was, in a friendly way, very critical of it because he only talked about, uh, he talked about the coming decreases in the coming era of austerity for the U.S. 
defense and how this would harm issues. But he, in my view, he didn't talk about roles and missions. And you know, the old Don Rumsfeld, if he'd been there when he talked about you know applying technology and finding other ways to sort of deal with this, you know, keep a robust spirit that America will still be there. It was depressing listening to Leon. And his com comment to mostly NATO uh, ministers was, we need you to do more. We need you to hold the line. And they were ticked off. They were saying, how dare you continue to push us when, when as Fred just said, their cover is bare, but they're basically saying, saying these kinds of things. So I do think that you know, the training missions and whatnot are important, but Evo Dalder, um, uh, Kurt Volker's uh, uh, successor in NATO, former successor, and is, uh, told me that the training expenses each year at that time were about $12 billion a year, almost roughly the same as the entire GDP of Afghanistan. That's automatically unsustainable. And even at the various other levels of spending, which if you know, the targeted, what we would provide, what allies would provide, they're still very staggeringly high uh, uh, costs for training those soldiers. I think it's very, very important. But when you're looking broadly at, at the various mixed missions that, that we have in North Africa and tracking other areas, it's hard for France, it's hard for Germany, it's hard for the UK in particular. Uh, right now that's seeing things done. So I think that it, we, have to be, we have to be humble and we have to figure out how to do the things that we're doing better than we're doing. And we have to demonstrate an efficiency in some of what we're doing that I think we're not. And I think that will help build confidence in our NATO allies in the kinds of requests we would make for them in place. I, I do agree with everything Seth said, though, in terms of the kind of direction. So hold on, on let me get a, let's yeah, get another absolutely. question and then we'll continue yeah. the conversation. Yes, sir? But, and I write for the Pakistani spectator, and my question is this, does any one of you have any appreciation that Pakistan has lost more than $1 trillion in terms of opportunity lost after September 11? Pakistan has lost 40,000 civilians. Pakistan has lost more than 7,000 security people. Pakistan, we brought Mr. 10% and these kind of crook and pushed them on poor Pakistani. I mean, I know these are just statistics because they are Muslim and Muslim mothers' stomachs are very fertile. They can produce a lot more babies than we could kill them. But is there any way we could show little sensitivity toward poor Pakistani in terms of going after Pakistan? Have you read Rick Perry, what he said? He said we are leveraging India enough so, against Pakistan. So the question is, what okay, about... Let, let, wh me, let me Have you read Senator Hegel? He said that India is financing against Pakistan. These India, our Indian friends have put literally Pakistan on fire. So, okay. Pakistan is burning. Pakistan okay, is collapsing because of our involvement in Afghanistan. I mean, please show me. little sense well, toward that poor well, country. I think it's an I'm a Republican, by the way, and Repo I mean Democrat. I live in Ghetto part of Washington D.C. and so Democrat friends say that Cammy. Republican love to waste money on abroad. Sir, we can't. We we, we want to get we want to get some it. some answers to your back. question. Which is what about Pakistan, right? What, that comes back around to. What about the support we've also received from Pakistan and Afghanistan? Is that is it is that roughly generally what you would like to? So what about that? Ken? Yeah, Understood. Yeah, I, I think we're trying to get you an answer. Um, let me just answer with, with reference to Balochistan, where the ISI's approach to fighting Baluch nationalists has been to empower. Sunni extremists who have been killing in large numbers the Pakistani um, Hazara Shia who have taken refuge in Quetta. So you know that's just one set of Pakistanis whose lives are being lost because the military has chosen chosen you know to support these militants. And the militants don't only attack 
US forces in Afghanistan, they, they attack the Pakistani military and they attack a lot of Pakistani civilians. So what I take from this is the need for all interlocutors with Pakistan to be much more rigorous in standing up to the Pakistani military's willingness to go to bed with these militants because they often find them convenient for the various fi fights that they're engaged in. My friend, by the common logic that Pakistani army would make trouble in their own country in the largest part. It's India that is creating trouble in Pakistani Balochistan. There are 15 Indian counties. The question about, sir, the qu I understand, but you're interrupting. Let, Mammy, let you're, me just try to you're get. You're commandeering an event rudely. You're an old friend of mine. Cut it out, okay? We can you get, there's going to be time afterwards. You could talk about specifically yeah. when it comes but to India. But the point is, what Cammy is saying is that there's a passion about this. There is a sense of who's doing what to whom that's very complex. And many of the grievances that various corners of this, you know, uh, uh, of this corner of the world have are legitimate, legitimate ones. The United States and its allies are out there trying and have been trying to create a frame through many, no disrespect to any of the players, but it does, it does involve many, many passions and grievances that, that it raises the fundamental question of what can be done can America can, you know, really create a tipping point for change? And, and is the process of that moving the stock of American power higher or lower? So that's. Well, we're going to take another question. Part of this, this debate is for a US, it's a US policy conversation, which is why we're coming at it from the point of view of the United States. That's why we're having it today. Right. Seth, I'll let you answer, but let me just get some more questions in. Go ahead, sir. Hi, Doug Brooks. I'm in the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, contractors have been there for almost uh, well over a decade now, and uh, we've trained up essentially a whole generation of uh, Afghans. Uh, they're English-speaking, they're Western-oriented, uh, they're very supportive of what's been going on. But uh, on my last visit, uh, most of them <laughs> are looking to get out. They don't see a future with the current government in Afghanistan. Looking to leave the country permanently? Looking, looking to leave uh, as, as the U.S. pulls out, as NATO leaves. Uh, is there anything, these are the people that we need over there if we're going to see the changes stick. Is there any way we can do, is there anything that you would suggest uh, to help them to stay? Interesting question. Steve? I mean, th th this is, a, again, one of these horrible um, issues because if you want Afghanistan to succeed and to come around, you want as much of that talent to stick as possible. At the same time, I uh, fear particularly for women, particularly for smart women, also in Iraq, what, what, what we saw there were that uh, professionals, uh, academics, doctors, those with finance were often kidnapped around. There's a whole other element of crime going on uh, in these countries that has nothing to do with the Taliban. It has to do basically with you know, kidnapping people for money and, and disrupting lives, and, and a lot of the killing has to do with that. But in, in my view, what's really been odd, and I'd love to hear somebody to tell me I'm wrong, is that for this level of engagement, for this amount of time, I don't see the Harriet Tubman project. I don't see us ferreting out the best minds in that country and moving them uh, into Europe and the United States. I see great talent in the ministries that I've been over, and I get these appeals to get out of the country. They can't get out of the country, or they're fearful for their lives. And so there's another element that I think we where the United States has been a bit derelict, which is dealing with the fact that those that have been part of the you know, modernity experiment nonetheless have to feel like they're not entirely trapped. There's got to be a pathway in and a pathway out. There's got to be going back and forth. 
And I just worry that that infrastructure is not there. And I was going to say, not in a facetious way, when we were asked what our NATO allies could do, another element is non-military. It's to basically to create these people-to-people, -people, particularly people-out exchanges of people that we... I'm going into the Rockefeller uh, Foundation archives uh, recently. During World War II, the Rockefeller Foundation put a lot of money into identifying places where the Nazis had gone in, they were killing people left and right, and, and really targeting the intellectuals in various areas. And Rockefeller Foundation spent a lot of money very much pin, you know, uh, getting people out. There was a, uh, I'm writing about it for the 100th anniversary. I feel that that's not something that we're not doing in many of the countries that are in these nightmare s scenarios, and we should be doing that. Sir, you had a, a, a follow-up question on that, so. Sure. My name is Ayub Khaurin. I work for the Voice of America Afghanistan Service. So we broadcast to the 30 million Afghans who will be watching our show tomorrow. Um, there is a lot to, from an Afghan perspective, the whole debate was very interesting and thanks for uh, providing the opportunity to talk about Afghanistan and this. The, the word premature, I, I heard from Mr. Kagan who said that the debate is a little premature. I would say it's too late, it's not premature. We are less than, less than two years, by the end of 2014, the, the the engagement or the military engagement is over and we, the Afghans at least, uh, they are talking about how many troops would remain after 2014. They're, they're not talking about any more of the, the military, uh, what's going on right now. Uh, the two topics that are, um, that's prevalent or that's, uh, that all the talk shows or the, the uh, debate, uh, is debated in Afghanistan or how many U.S. troops would remain after 2014 and what for what reasons, which is also a good question. I heard also, um, again, I think it was Mr. Kagan, that for greater U.S. interests in Afghanistan, I think if that is, that's, uh, that, that's a dangerous one from an Afghan, uh, what, uh, many Afghans would would not want that. Ed Karzai has been trying to assure the neighboring countries, Iran and Pakistan and Central Asia and even China and, and India that uh, the U.S. would be committed uh, to only Afghan mission in Afghanistan. So, so, so my like question zero, is, zero yes. Zero troops there, is that what? It, the it, troops, it, and how many after 2014 and and for the, for to clarify purpose? on the, on the, uh, yes, on, on the, uh, on the mission after 2014. That's a good question, Fred, because there's all, with the speculation amongst the public, there's all, if there's no uh, direct information about why we're there after 2014, it will lead to a lot of questions raised about what we're doing. Is, and because you're an advocate of ex absolutely. troops there, what do you think about no, that? No, absolutely, and Tashakur, that's an excellent question, and, um, and I'm glad that you uh, brought that up and gave me an opportunity to address it. The United States sends troops abroad to serve the interests of the United States of America. That's why, we, that's why any country uses military force rationally. Sometimes we also do it for humanitarian reasons, but that, that's not what's driving us, I think, primarily in this case. It is essential that our purposes be meshed with the interests of the Afghan people in a fundamental way if we're going to continue to have troops there. And that's always a requirement anywhere that you're going to have a, a, some, a foreign military presence. The people among whom that presence persists have to feel that that presence is serving their interests as well in some way. And it's the other reason why I think it is essential that we continue to focus on counterinsurgency, on good governance building, 
on helping Afghans create a state structure and non-state structures that they find acceptable and suitable. And I do think that we've made a lot of mistakes. It's obvious that we've made a lot of mistakes over the years imposing Western models on Afghanistan and so forth, although it's not as though Afghanistan had a functioning model at the time when we invaded either. But what we need to be doing, and I think what we have been trying to do in some parts, is helping Afghans figure out what they want, what will work for all of their communities, and how to enable that. And our forces can provide a security backdrop and then help the Afghan security forces to be able to sustain that. Because that is that we're all agreed on the end state here. The end state, I think we are, we're all agreed that the end state is that you have a stable Afghan government that is acceptable to its people, the basic definition of legitimacy, that is secured by its own security forces that are able to do that with limited assistance from the outside. That's the objective. And we're simply talking about how to achieve that. What I was saying is we, the United States, would commit to that because it's in our national interest for that to be the case. But I entirely agree with you that if we scope our presence in Afghanistan after 2014 down to say we are only there to kill bad guys, to kill people who are threatening us, then there's nothing in it for the Afghan people. And I actually don't think that it will be sustainable. And I think that that's a fast road to zero in reality. Um, you know, a lot of this discussion has assumed that, you know, post-2014, there's going to be a war without end. And we're kind of debating how much of that is going to be with US troops versus Afghan troops. But let me put forward another scenario, which is that there's going to be a peace agreement of some sort. And how do we, um, not ensure, but how do we promote the possibility that that peace agreement is better rather than worse. And the, um, I, I think there are a couple of things that could be done. I mean, better one is- Better for us or better for Afghanistan? Well, I actually think they're pr pretty similar. Um, but you know, one thing would be to um, be much clearer about the US red lines. So, and, and again, the US has influence because of the massive aid that is being promised. So you know, when the US says, oh, women's rights is a red line, you know, we're going to insist that any Taliban who comes into the peace agreement abide by the Afghan constitution. You know, that's ridiculous. That's like saying nothing. You know, so there, there has to be much clearer red lines with respect to basic rights issues. Um, I also think that um, there has to be a greater insistence on transparency because ultimately I have the greatest faith in the Afghan people in terms of shaping a peace plan that would ultimately be decent. But when the peace negotiations take place secretly, people have no idea what's going on. And they suddenly wake up and hear that, aha, you know, um, Karzai's offering the Justice Ministry and the Chief Justiceship to the Taliban, which was a report that Al Jazeera came out with this week. Who knows if that's true? Because there's zero transparency. If there was transparency, you would get an outpouring of, of, you know, of rejectionism, I suspect, from the Afghan people. And we have a much greater likelihood of having a positive peace agreement, if one's possible, with the Taliban, rather than just having Karzai cut a deal in the back room, which will be a disaster. I have a, a final question, ma'am. Thank you. My name is Frances Harden, not representing anybody except myself. I wanted to just address this issue of women's issues because I served in Afghanistan on a USAID project for most of 2011. I was communications director on our project, but one of, our, uh, one of the things that was in my portfolio was gender mainstreaming, which really meant including Afghan women as much as we could. I have met several, on several occasions with the ministry, Minister of Women's Affairs and her deputies, and we were working through this system of women's gardens that exist in Afghanistan. It's true the better ones are in the bigger cities. But our effort there was to establish training programs for Afghan women. There are quite a few, not tons, but quite a few Afghan women who are in business. We were working on training programs. I organized a training program, a seminar, a three-day seminar in Kandahar. 
uh, no, sorry, sorry, Mazari Sharif, um, for business women improving their skills. It was oversubscribed. We had to turn people away. There is a hunger for this kind of thing. And then one final personal note, it's true we can't protect women there very easily. I have in my home at this moment, she landed in my lap three weeks ago, a young Afghan woman who worked for me, she's 23, her life has been threatened because she and her family were working with Afghan women trying to in, in their village in Parwan, teaching them reading and writing and computer skills and sorts of things that you can work at home. I mean, there's a recognition of trying to get women to be able to work, but in a traditional way, or at least through the home. Anyway, so my young friend is here now. Tomorrow I'm taking her to a lawyer. We're going to try and start the asylum process. So the, que the question is? Uh, there wasn't a question. It was a comment, too. The, yeah, the comment you. over there okay. that there wasn't no, much I mean, being done for I mean, women. We, we, we have a long way to go, even with this government. I mean, I, I, I was in Afghanistan to address an issue of the criminalization of running away from home for women when they're fleeing you know, forced marriage or domestic violence. And that's a crime in Afghanistan. It's not in the penal code, it's not in Sharia, they just made it up, but they enforce it. And, and this, you know, when I would meet with the, um, the Chief Justice or meet with the Attorney General, you know, it was twisting arms to get them to even say we won't pursue these crimes or you know, give us a list of people and we'll release them. And we have enormous work to be done with this government on these basic issues, let alone what might come later. But this is not something that the U.S. or our allies are putting adequate real political muscle into. And we should be using conditionality behind this massive promise of aid to get these things done. Can I just do one contending point there? You know, it is really terrific that we're having this discussion. And I know that Fred Kagan and Seth and all of you are going to stay in this for a long time. But when the Obama administration came in, the, the, the way to be at the top of the foreign policy national security pyramid was to have your stake in the Afghanistan pie. And if you looked at Jim Jones, Carl Eikenberry, Richard Holbrook, David Petraeus, you, it was like the old Cold War. You had to be a Sovietologist or a weapons expert, and that's how you were king of the crop. And Afghanistan, no one wants to be involved in Afghanistan now except Fred. Like, the, the, it, it is, it, it, Seth, you're moving on to other things. But, but my, my point is that there is now going to, there is an institutional distraction where this topic is looked at as toxic for careers, toxic for deployments. It is, a, it is increasingly becoming a forgotten issue. I think it is vital. So that's the environment we're walking into. And, and, I, and I have been asking myself this question of how could we have gotten it right or different? And I, you know, again, you know, we're, we're in, you know I'm in the ideas business. So, could, you know, and I, I listen to aid, I listen to, what, what, what the problems of cutting aid or not being able to, to spend the amount we were there, a very, very kind of earnest, what can we do to them approach. If you go back in history, what we did in Japan, John Foster Dulles was so worried about Japan falling back into a China-centric direction that he took, you know, Japan's markets and Japan's economic success, and it was successful at one point, uh, is not entirely by getting prices right. It was wedged deeply in the U.S. economy. That you had preferential trade, preferential economic deals. Pre we built Japan in part because we wanted it to be uh, our strong ally. And I have found this very odd that we've adopted a country that we don't want to really be close to. And, and, and I've been waiting for so the massive trade preferences that you would give uh, the AFL-CIO is going to be very upset, but you would give massive trade. If you want to change the economic vector and horizon for people and where they look to and where they're influenced, it's not through aid and throwing in military. It's by giving them economic opportunities by selling things to us and by creating a re and, and owning that and creating I agree with that. That has not been done after You guys are on the same side. Years. You're supposed to you're I know, I'm on sorry. the side. I'm sorry. I'm on that other side. I, I, I know there's so it. many questions, that, and, and I, I apologize for not getting uh, to them all. 
right now, but we're just going to have some closing statements, and then you're all going to have some opportunities to mingle afterwards ah. and talk to all of these guys. But we'll kind of go back around to where we started, which is that policy is personal. It is personal. What we say here has a dramatic effect on lives of people all over the world, not only in Afghanistan, but also our own men and women that are serving over there. And a big question about should we stay or should we go is whether or not what we stay for or what we leave is worth dying for. This is very serious, this policy. It's not just a, a question of diplomacy or you know, counterinsurgency or counterterrorism. It's really about lives. So as we just close here, a brief statement from you all. What is the one reason why we should stay? And what's the one reason why we should go? Fred? The reason we should say stay is because there continue to be people in Afghanistan and people who will come back to Afghanistan who wake up every morning and ask themselves, how can I kill Americans? And how can I bring this war to the United States? And we will not be able to end that threat until we have accomplished the objectives that we've all sort of collectively described here. And I think we can have a very articulate discussion as Steve uh, rightly raised questions about the importance of this versus other things. Uh, I have done that thinking. I have, do look at other things, believe it or not, than Afghanistan. Um, and I am still persuaded that this is worth it. But that's reasonable people can disagree about that. That's why to be here. But I just want to say something about the issue of American war weariness, if I can, because it bugs me. I've never worn the uniform, and so I feel comfortable saying this. The American people, as a, as a people, have no right whatsoever to feel war weariness unless by that is meant the weariness of reading and watching other people fight this war. Because the overwhelming majority of American people have not fundamentally been involved in this war, have not fundamentally had to make sacrifices for it. And it's not that kind of war weariness that we're talking about. And what we're saying really is we don't feel like dealing with this anymore. And I don't think that's a sound basis for making policy decisions at the end of the day. And I don't think that it gets you where you need to be, and I think it does break faith at a certain point with the people who actually have the right to be weary of this war. But coming back and answering your question in another way, we may be weary of this war, but this war is not weary of us. And the war doesn't end just because we decide we don't feel like playing anymore. Yeah. Well, I, um you know, whether we should be weary of this war, the American people are weary of this war. So I'm going to start from the assumption that the U.S. is leaving militarily. Um, and I'm going to look at it rather from the perspective, you know, what's best for the Afghan people? You know, how do we prevent a Taliban retakeover? And, and that um, is a real question. Um, there is a military strategy that has to be part of that. But as I've been saying, a military strategy alone will not work. Indeed, it could be counterproductive. I think a lot of the current military strategy is counterproductive. And so there has to, I think, we have to seize this opportunity. Um, the fact that the US is not going to be as preoccupied with force protection. It's not going to be as you know, embarrassed by defeats um, as it has been for a decade um, to reorient the way that the United States engages with the Afghan government. We have the economic leverage to do it right. We have to change the political strategy and have a real strategy that, frankly, has not been articulated. When we press the State Department on this, when we press the White House, um, we get you know, kind of broad statements of concern, heartfelt statements of concern, but not a real plan, and certainly not the communication of real conditions for the future to whatever Afghan government emerges after the elections there um, so that they are likely to be set on a political course that is a greater chance of success than the current one. 
I think this is pretty straightforward. As long as there are threats to the U.S. homeland coming from this region, we cannot leave entirely. It is uh, counterproductive to U.S. national security, period, exclamation point. Uh, there are common interests with the Afghans. Let me just conclude with one other remark, which unfortunately we did not get into. Probably the most significant event over the next 12 months will not be the fighting, or not just be the fighting, or not just be the settlement discussions. It's the elections next year in Afghanistan. Much will hinge on what happens over the next 12 months, who gets elected, what sort of representation we have, what sort of support we have uh, among Afghans. So again, to support Ken's political comment earlier in the discussion and to highlight one that hasn't come, watch this election process. It is very important for the future of this country. I just say finally, America can't afford a whack-a-mole strategy in dealing with threats, that the Al-Qaeda threat is metastasized in other parts of the world, that uh, we have the dangers of real nuclear proliferation of the movement and proliferation of other uh, WMD materials. We have uh, the rise of potential peers in nations like with China that don't see the world like the United States does. There are a lot of issues. If you go back to September 10th, 2001 and look at what we were spending on just defense, not other stuff, to make Americans feel safe and you look over time and account for inflation, the bin Laden effect just in DOD spending is $2.7 trillion above that baseline. That's about six million sustained jobs if you were to be reckless and look at what would happen. It's an awful lot of money. And, and in, in, in many ways, it's been successful because we haven't had other large-scale uh, uh, attacks on the United States. But it does raise the question about how do you get smarter? How do you begin dealing with these other things? And we have had, uh, we have not solved the Iran problem. We do have a metastasization of problems. I do worry a lot about what's going on in Africa. And I worry about sending American men and women into a place where we look mired down and stuck as opposed to this to leveraging U.S. power. It's very important to always, whenever you're engaged, at the end of the day, I remember the chairman of ARCO, Laud Cook, telling me, if you're an oil man, you know, it's not how much oil you produce or sell that matters. It's whether you have a sustainable situation and whether you have other oil stocks that are out there. U.S. power is much the same. You can go out and do great things in the world, but you can't do senselessly, recklessly, that, that spend everything you have. You've got to make sure you've got to have leverage the next day to do other things. And that's why I raise questions about Afghanistan, because it feels to me that too many other rivals and observers of what we're doing have been looking at us as stuck and as overreaching. And I think it's important, if we're going to send American men and women in there, we make this matter. And I don't think we've been doing that. And so without strategy, I think it's almost criminal to leave, thing, leave these people there. We do not have a strategy today uh, for dealing with the broad uh, changing parameters in that region. There goes that budding friendship with Fred in that <laughs> statement. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a drink later. Steve, Seth, Ken, Fred, thank you very much. I know there's going to be a lot of questions. For I'd also say thank you to Jenna Lee for your terrific job moderating. Thank you yes. for that, and thank, thank you, Jenna. It is hard to draw a conclusion after a debate <laughs> such as this, but I will try to draw one, which is whatever we do, the consequences are very, very serious for the people of Afghanistan, for the region, including Pakistan, for our own security, for the broader strategic issues in the North Africa or elsewhere. We can't drift passively along and hope it's going to be okay. We have to be serious about a strategy. That's what we're aiming to get at through this debate series. Thank you all for coming. Our next one will be April 17th on the subject of Iran. Thank you. Thank you. That's